Barry Howlett here, Executive Officer of the Australian Deer Association. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Australian Deer Podcast. These are occasional podcasts produced by the Australian Deer Association, focusing on deer hunting and deer management issues primarily in Australia. The following discussion was recorded live on the 17th of September 2020 with a webinar audience of some 275 ADA members. In the grip of restrictions to curtail the impact of the coronavirus pandemic in Australia, most of our deer and hunting community have been unable to come face to face together for much of the year. 2020 is certainly one for the books, and we appreciate the ongoing support and understanding of our fantastic members in these challenging times. I hope that you enjoy this presentation, a question and answer session with Samba hunting guru, Mr. Paul Bogue. So I'll just um, quickly welcome everyone to tonight. Sure, Here's Cole joining us now. A few people have submitted questions by email and we'll try and work through them. Um, there's also a Q&A button at the bottom of your screen uh, to ask questions. So we might read them or we might open up the microphone and call on you to ask. If we miss your question, we'll just apologise in advance for that. It's certainly not intended. Tonight's going to be recorded and we'll make it available on the members only section of the website um, there's probably a bloke in Kyala sitting there who's going to have to do that tomorrow saying, you're going to do what? Um, that's all right. Thanks, Jamie. We'll get some of the tech wrong tonight, no doubt. So bear with us on that. And just I just wanted to introduce with there's a, there's a fair few pretty serious issues going on at the moment in the deer world. There's you know, commercialisation push in Tassie, um, a lot of angst about the aerial culling in Victoria and New South Wales, a big push on public land hunting in Queensland. And... As ADA, we're more than happy to discuss them and to organise forums like these to get members involved in those discussions. But tonight's not the night for that. Uh, tonight's about the stuff that we're interested in deer for, the fun stuff about learning about hunting and about learning about hunting, what many would say is probably the most special of the deer in Australia, which is the Samba. Um, enough from me. I'll throw over to ADA's new <coughs> chair, Cole Brumley, um, who can give you a quick rundown on what tonight's about. Thanks, Barry. Well, welcome, everybody. In these strange times, we're finding ourselves doing something even stranger. We're going to um, sit in our lounge rooms and so on and listen to Paul Bogue talk about Samba, which is pretty strange to do at your own house, but it uh, should be good. I just wanted to say a little bit about tonight. Um, we've, we've got... Uh, normally, uh, ADA are doing things for the whole of the uh, deer hunting world. But tonight, um, we're just going to do this. This is just for members only. It's an added benefit to being a member of ADA. We thought, well, seeing as um, not much has been happening for a lot of people, we'd do something extra just for our members, aside from our normal advocacy stuff, which we do for all deer hunters. And we do all those things for all deer hunters. That's just what we do. You know, it's just the way it is with us. We haven't been together having meetings, socialising, learning or any of those things. So hopefully this tonight will fill that gap, that void a little bit. I don't expect it'll do a whole lot as far as we're all hankering to get out, but it's better than nothing, I suppose. Paul Bogue. Well, what can I say? Paul's a uh, third generation Samba hunter, I believe. Yeah, third, isn't it, Paul? Fourth. Fourth. I thought it was four. I just thought I wasn't game to say it and without being sure. So yeah, fourth generation Samba Hunter, which is absolutely amazing. If any of you have ever been to any of his talks, he packs the halls out, they fill up, they go for hours. Uh, everyone's 
on the edge of their seat. Um, Paul's insights into deer, how, they, how he thinks about how the deer behave and what they do is exceptional. Normally, Paul would go for, well, if we let him, he'd probably go till the early hours of the morning. But tonight, um, we'll try not to go to midnight, perhaps just an hour or so, Paul. But look, without saying too much more, I just want to say welcome, Paul. Welcome to all of you. And get yourself a drink. Uh, sit back, relax. I hope you like it. Hopefully, we'll have many more if this goes well on various other subjects, which Barry touched on. And um, over to you, Paul. Take it away. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I was just trying to load up and have a look what one of the first pre-ordered questions were, but my phone turned off while I was trying I've to read them. I've got them here. I can read them out to you. Are you going to read, read one of the first ones out? We'll see what we yep. do with that. Um, question from Adam. I'm curious as to your thoughts on pursuing samba tracks once you've bumped them by both being centred and then seeing or hearing you and running. I recently got winded by a hind and I followed her tracks for hours and covered a few kilometres and eventually led to private property. Was I wasting my time? Might she have pulled up sooner if she'd heard me without smelling me? Would I have been better off cutting my losses and focusing on another gully system? Some pretty fundamental questions in Samba hunting there from Adam, I think. Yeah, I, I work on the theory of once they've smelled you, go find something else. They're not untouchable. They just are well and truly aware the game's on and it makes life a lot harder. They don't go back to sort of relaxing at all. They spend the whole rest of the day hiding as best they can and when they do that, they are hard. So if it only seen you, well, then it has to work out what you are. It's sort of just seen from the deer's point of view and that's what most of this hunting stuff is. From its point of view, if it just seen movement, well, what was it? What are you? It's hard to work it out. So... You can leave that deer with some doubt. When it's smelled you, you've given it no doubt at all what you are. So therefore it's on high alert from that point onwards. So that's the number one for me is if they've smelled me, yeah, go find another deer to play with. And that is only that one deer. Don't forget that the population's growing and the amount of deer around, there's every chance there is other deer somewhere nearby that's not that one deer. And if wind and thermals and air movement sort of, it narrows down a fair bit. Like, it doesn't spread out and go everywhere. So the deer that smell you might be the one there, but who's saying there wasn't one another 50, 100 metres further over or a little bit further up in the gully or not that far away, one more little gully over that you could actually be hunting. So don't drop your guard by any means because that's often what happens. And I've been guilty even with customers doing that. Like, <laughs> oh, we scared that one. We've mucked that up. Take two steps and get honked out by the second deer we didn't even know was there. So just, yeah, if they smell me. Yeah, let them ones go, but keep an eye out. You're in the right area where a deer want to be, so every chance you'll find a second one. Good question, Adam. Um, next one's from Scott. Regarding catabatic winds when starting an early morning hunt, I'm not sure which elevation is best for early morning hunts. I'd like to be set up halfway up the hill before sunrise to cut off the deer as they head to their beds, but I'm worried that the wind will be drawing my scent right down to them. Do I just not worry about it and hope the deer don't scent me or are there other options that I haven't thought of or other things I should be more concerned about? No, nah, that's probably one of the main ones is, is, is the, where the air movement is. It's the main one people probably don't think about enough is the fact that air moves all the time and carries our scent somewhere, constantly. So it's not as it's, it's simple enough that warm air rises, cool air falls with thermals, but it's kind of not that basic. That Depending on what face you want as to what time frame you're going to get, for that airflow to move. So say an east-facing gully 
the sun's popping up, that's getting first morning rays. It might only be falling of the first 15, 20 minutes, half an hour of first light. But on the west face, you might get two hours of the breeze still falling, like the thermal's falling, before the sun gets up high enough to come over the ridgeline and start to change it. So that'll, that'll affect what side of the hill you're on to where you want to be. I normally start from the bottom, and like I hunt, I hunt the lake a bit, so everything's got to be starting from the bottom at a boat. And I'll just sacrifice one gully. I'll just go, you know what, I want to hunt that gully, so go to the gully to the left, hunt up that, walk up that, wait in that gully till I know the thermals have turned, then move over to where I'm hoping to be above the deer. So pick the line that you hope the deer are on, put yourself off it, and then wait for the thermals to be in your favour to be coming up, then go above the deer or at that level and look from them. Don't sort of be in there in advance. Because if you're there and the thermals are dropping, just go, there's nothing coming from below me now. I know that I'm here. They ain't coming. Uh, the next one's from Reagan. Reagan, uh, apologies if I've got that wrong. I've covered both bases, I think. I'm new to ADA, but have been hunting Samba for four years and like many are hooked. I appreciate everything both Barry and team and Paul do for deer hunting or hunting in general in Oz. And we appreciate that you appreciate that. I've talked with Paul a few times at shows, etc. Always open for a chat, very approachable. I don't think anyone would disagree with that characterisation of Paul. Uh, question one, does Paul do anything special in regards to scent control on clothing, packs or gear, especially on multi-date hunts when you can get quite sweaty? Or does he treat gear after a hunt when stored, i.e. washing clothes in special powders, etc.? I don't worry about the scent as much. Because you can, Americans are massive on scent lock clothing and scent lock clothing and even adding stuff to it. It only really affects me if I'm doing like a, a sit and wait in a blind or a tree stand and I want to leave as minimal scent on the ground. I've used gumboots, I've used waders to walk my way to a spot. So I leave minimal scent there and then get up and wait. But for general stalking and walking around, I'm not that worried about it because you're going to have some human scent no matter what you do unless you're in an airtight bubble because as soon as you breathe, that's a human smell, whether it's what you drank, a coffee, you might smoke, whether you brushed your teeth, anything that's a human smell from your breath, they pick up that one little part. That's enough. So the whole rest of you is all treated and they can't smell it. That's not enough to overwhelm it. fact that I've tried playing with different sprays and putting given eucalyptus and stuff, and I didn't find it worked enough. I didn't drown out the human smell because I don't think they notice the other smells. It's kind of like us being in the city and lots of cars and traffic. We really don't notice car exhaust fumes when there's hundreds of cars, yet the car exhaust fume stinks. We don't kind of notice all the BO and the deodorants and perfumes of all the people in a crowded area, but you notice the smell of hot chips or, or a donut or coffee. You'll pick those little individual smells out but you kind of don't notice the everyday smells of people and cars. And it's a bit like the deer. They don't kind of take that much notice of normal, natural smells around them. But an outstanding one like a human scent, they pick up on really quickly. But I still do wash my clothes in proper deer hunting clothes wash. I actually get um, stuff from the Mike Schmitz one that does through ADA and sells a bit. I use he stuff. And that's more about the UV value. You don't want the UV additive of good washing powder in your clothes because you glow. It reflects that UV when you use high-end like washing powders and then you actually literally glow. The, the deer see you. It doesn't matter how good your camo is. If you've washed it in that washing powder and it's reflecting the UV, you get a glow to you and they notice you. I learned that years ago when I was in a full kind of yowie suit and the deer kept picking me and I had no idea 
what it was. And then more and more I looked into it, it was the fact that I was glowing in this Yowie suit because it had been washed in good washing. They made it look nice and clean, looked really bright, but added a UV balance sort of reflecting stuff to it. And that's what a hunting wash doesn't do. And I don't always wash in that stuff. I, if I just come home and I'm a little bit sweaty, I'll often just throw in the washing machine with just water. It's enough just to take a bit of my human scent out of it. Every half a dozen washes, I make sure I add that stuff in. Or I'm covered in blood or mud, add it in then. But the scent side of it, I just pay attention to where it's going. I actually had a customer a little bit upset with me when I rocked up and uh, after lunch and spilled diesel, filling the car up and all over my boots and he's sitting in the car and I'm thinking he's looking a bit frustrated at me. He's like, you stink of diesel. We can't, how are we going to do anything this afternoon? When, as long as our smell doesn't go to them, it doesn't really matter. And 30 minutes in the bush and there's two deer looking at us and he shoots one. I went, well, that didn't matter how much we smelled like diesel, did it? And he kind of chuckled and laughed and went, yep, all right, because the breeze was not going to the deer. So they couldn't smell us. Well, think um, that kind of covered that one. Yeah, I think so. Um, second part of the question, there's a few similarities with that first question in this. Um, so also from Regan, does Paul think that finding or running into deer is really luck, right time, right place, especially when you don't have time to put in multiple days to locate deer or don't live in the area to pattern them? I'm always where they've been, but not often where they are. I understand that everything has to be right to make sure you don't bump them out of the area, as in wind in your face um, the whole time, quiet, slow stalking. Those rare occasions when everything is right, the deer are just not where I am. The only deer I find is when I least expect it. Like walking back along the road to camp after a painfully slow stalk through some awesome country, honk, and it's gone. I've tried to follow them up, but seem to be bumping further, looking forward to finally seeing a deer before it sees or hears me. <laughs> yes, that is probably one of the most common things that I get asked about. And that is the whole purpose of my education courses is that's all based around understanding the animal. It's not luck that you, I, I tell the customers and hopefully there's enough out there that'll vouch for me nowadays, that the deer will be here and this why they'll be here. And then you go there and they're there. And so the more we understand about the deer, it's, it's where, they, where they want to be. And that's the mindset that we need to be in as hunters is forget about yourself. Forget about what you think's good. It's all about them. Where do the deer want to be at this particular time and day and why? And you're not going to get it right and you're not going to know it from the start, but that walking down the road and bumping into a deer and it barks at you and runs away, it's then taking that next step of going, why were you here? And that's what I've been doing my whole life. I'm just naturally a curious person and I want to know the ins and outs of things. And being that I got shoved in the bush from 12 years old and run around with Dad and chasing deer and probably actually started doing it when I was about seven or eight years old, just had to know why. Like, why did the deer want to be there? And probably annoyed the hell out of my dad and probably cost him plenty of deer that he could have shot because I'm going, why are they over there, Dad? Why did, why did it just run away? Why was it doing that? Why did it? But that's how I got to where I am is that every time I see them, I want to know what they're up to. I try to go, what are you thinking now, dear? Why do you want to be here? And sitting and observing them, sometimes you'll see it. It's, it's, there's something to it. And if you're taking the rest of the surroundings, there's often the answers that you're looking for. So with plenty of customers that have shot deer and I've gone, now... You tell me why the deer was sitting there while we shot it. And they're like, oh, I don't know. Like, have a look around us. This is the one quiet patch in the gully and it is a really windy day and this is the one little nice spot out of it or it was cold and it's a sunny spot or they've got the best view. Like, there's a reason the deer are there. There's not random choice. They don't just randomly walk around a bush and go, I want to be here. Like, there's always a reason behind them and it's just thinking from their point of view where they want to be 
and put yourself there. Very good. The third part of Regan's question. Um, all three deer I've taken in the last four years have been alert of my presence, although they are not sure what I am. They're either honking or stomping at the time. How normal is this in Samba hunting? Um, he hopes this makes sense. I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, it's probably fairly normal because uh, most people, that's the level of making enough noise or movement to be alerting the deer. You can take that back by then having that prediction of where you really think the deer are going to be. The, the, the fault, well, not the fault, but the, the, the other side of the coin that comes with that is that I have had some really, really quiet, slow, particular stalks in a spot for the deer not to be. And I kind of worked out, but I would rather put do it as right as possible as I can, so do all the right moves, be as slow, as methodical and quiet as I can, using the, the, the bushes surrounding, everything I can to hide me, making sure I'm gloved up, face mask, everything I can, wind working right, and then the deer not be home. That I don't feel I find as frustrating as trying to shortcut it and the deer are home and I muck that up. I'd rather get out of there and go, you know what, we did it all right, just weren't here today, rather than bumping them and then doing that. But it's pretty standard. If you get in the bark and they're stomping and not knowing you are, you're still doing a fair bit right. You've just got to be probably eye-picking them up quicker, getting more practice with binos and getting better at it and just that slightest detail. You'll pick them up faster than they're picking you up and that'll be the next little the step. And then yeah, a lot of it you probably, if you're probably already quiet enough, nearly, if they're not really running away and you're just using most of the, most of the bush. But get in the habit of stopping in shadows. I like to stop. If I stop a glass, it's nearly always in a shadow or next to a bush or a tree. Something that's going to break my surrounding up. So then if that sort of situation happens and they do sort of stare at me or look in my direction, it's much harder for them to identify what I am, give me more chance that deer will just put its head back down and go feed him rather than really want to run away from it. I'll move on to one um, from Norm Gibson. This is Norm Gibson from Brisbane. I know there's a few Norm Gibsons around. Good question, one that's pretty close to what you certainly promote a lot of, Paul. Is there a recommended max temperature for overnight hanging of a deer carcass, say, outside under a tree? Is there a recommended time to store meat in any ordinary fridge before moving to a freezer? Um, and he goes on to say the Goom connection, Zoom connection. Is a great initiative for ADA, so thanks for that, Norm. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a couple of things in there. Hanging them overnight. If the animal's been shot that day, that afternoon, I don't really think there's a, a worrying temperature because the fact that the animal's at live body temperature when you shot it. And even with a good cool room or cold conditions, it takes hours to get that heat out of a full animal. If they're cut down in their legs and you've quartered it and done it that way, it's not as long. But like I have hung full animals in we're standing there in a foot of snow and it is snowing and you wake up and the animals have got snow on them but you start to cut them the next morning and the meat internally is still warm. They're designed not to lose body temperature too fast because that's how they stay alive. As for hanging, as for that, so any temperature is fine. I've shot them and it's yeah, 35, 40-degree days, late afternoon, long as the flies. It's the flies that I worry about more than the temperature. As long as the flies have gone to bed when I decide I can hang it, it's fine until the next morning. But on that side, you want to be up nice and early and getting that deer prepared and put away because the flies will be out first thing. You can go to the stand of a meat bag, get a full body meat bag, works good. But if flies are around and you're going to want to have that little bit of sleep in so you don't have to, just where you tie it around the rope or you tie it around something protruding out of the bag when you have to tie it to hang the animal, 
that that knot, whack a heap of pepper around it, and they flies won't lay, lay, lay eggs there for their larvae to crawl in, because they will. They'll lay them around the edge, and then the maggots will crawl through the littlest tiny gaps that you didn't even think was a gap, and they get in. But if you put a heap of pepper there, they don't then lay the eggs there, and that doesn't happen. So that that'll protect them a little bit, and you get a bit longer out of it. Hanging them outside, I don't like day temperatures to get sort of above the mid-teens. So 15 sort of my... If it's getting max of 15, that's probably as hot as I'll let it get. When their day's at 10, 12 degrees down here, fine. And we work on a theory of 40-degree days. So when the day temperature averages add to day outside, it's 10 degrees, that gives you four days to hang them outside. If it's five degrees, you've got eight days to hang them outside. As for refrigerating them, you put them in a fridge. If you can, you pull the racks out, put a rail across... And you hang them, they're better if they're hung because it lets them drain. If you can't, you just want to use the racks in the normal fridge, just rotate your legs. So put them on one day when you come home, flip them over, flip them over, and that'll help them drain and get the fluids out of them better. But a week in a normal fridge is actually quite good. That's about what I do in the cool room, and a normal standard fridge at home works about the same. You don't have to trim off any of the air-dried bits, so therefore your back straps, your eye fillets, whack them in a meat calico meat bag, or if you haven't, just like a couple of tea towels, like you would a ham, just so the air doesn't sort of dry that, get that skin as much on the outside, roll them up, and they're fine. But, yeah, nice week in the fridge. It'll change the taste of your meat. It'll take a lot of that gaminess. That, and you'll notice that the actual stuff that drains out, not the, the blood, but the clearer fluids, actually get a different sort of smell to them. And that takes a lot of that gaminess taste out of them. And actually, you get a lot better meat. We grew up eating meat that we shot, cut up, go home, and that's eat it. And it was hit and miss. You'd get some and you go, oh, that's gamey. As soon as we started hanging them in a cool room for a week, you really, really got that. Like I gave a lot of meat away and people were like, oh, don't get the gamey taste because it's been hung in that cool room or put in a fridge for a week. Well, the next question is from a bloke. And we had to toss up whether it will allow this or not. So this bloke won a Paul Bogue Hunter education course in a raffle and he hasn't made the time to go and do the Paul Bogue Hunter education course. So I don't know if he deserves to have his question answered or not. Well, he has um, been a bit of a cripple to himself. He doesn't. Well, he, he does have a, a wonderful way of injuring himself. And yeah. Anyway, Gino Landaro asks Do you think the moon phase has anything to do with Samba stag activity? 100%. Not just stag, deer, all deer in general. That's pretty sort of simple when you want to break it down to the logic of it that they're an animal that has good day vision and great night vision. Now, they're flighty and spooky in daytime, but they're a lot more calm and relaxed when it's darker. Their, their vision sort of... And it's the same being daytime or a really overcast, drizzly, rainy day. You find deer a lot more relaxed and calmed down. The moon phases kind of work the same. I hate the period around the full moon. The deer go a lot more quieter and they're a lot more spooky. They're not as relaxed because of it. But saying that, the build-up to it and after the full moon is great hunting because... It's like the deer get that reprieve of, oh, it's finally getting some dark nights um, and then they get back to happy routine. Then full night periods, they spend all day and all night on a higher alert level because visibility is so good. And they, they work on if visibility is really good, they can be seen. And all they're trying to do is not be seen. Samba work on the fact that if you can't see me, you can't eat me. That's their mentality for life. So full moon means you can see me easily. And things move. That's why if you've ever seen a deer in a headlight, the car, often people go, why is it looking the other way? 
you come along the road and the deer's standing on the road and it's not looking at the noisy car and the bright lights, it's looking the opposite way to the car. And if you watch and observe them, it's the fact that they cast a shadow. Their eyes are horizontal pupils designed to catch movement and that's how they live their life. They live it by based on when they see movement, they look to identify it. To identify it, they freeze and they stay still waiting for it to move. When you get them in the headlights, they often see their shadow move as they go to leave. That spooks them because it's something close. They stare. And when they stand perfectly still, their shadow ain't moving. So they don't know what to do. And as they move, they catch their own shadow. And you have had them. I actually had a couple of years ago, I had eight. Funnily enough, almost in the centre of Eildon Township, standing in the middle of the road. And the more that they ran, the more they got spooked and they kind of scattered and went back and forth. But I had 15 minutes parking there watching these deer go back and forth and not getting off the road because they'd get spooked by each other's shadows and didn't know what to do. So full moons means cast shadows, means deer don't like it. Bright sunny day, cast shadow, deer don't like it. Overcast days, level light is consistency, a bit like the background of your photo there. Nice, it's overcast, no shadows, deer are much more happy. So the night times when it's consistently sort of darker, deer are happier. But play with the windows at one or the other end of them them sort of full moon. More the back end I found probably better than the, the start. Sometimes you get them and they're a little bit like sleep deprived and kind of not quite right. Like they do some odd things come the back end of a full moon. I found them doing things that have had made me scratch my head going, why would you want to be here? But it's like they're a little bit sleep deprived because they've had these so many nights, three or four nights of high pressure because it's so bright and they haven't relaxed. First couple of nights of relaxing, they kind of let their head down a bit too much, I think. Hope that answers Gino. If not, he'll have to come out and find out more questions. We've got more questions. We'll get into your education course, Gino. Chris wants to know, when you're looking for a new area to hunt that you haven't been to before, what attributes do you consider when planning for aerial photos or maps? One of the main ones that I want, and it's hard, I've tried playing with Google Maps and often they're out of date more than I think. Like I think oh, that looks like it's reasonable terrain and it's thicker than it, than it looks in a photo. It's changed, it's overgrown, something. I, I'd rather a topographical map where I can look at the contour lines to actually see sort of how steep the area is so I can work out whether it's flat, undulating, whether it's steep, whether th how the thermal is going to work. I want to look at <clears throat> the angles of main dividing ridge lines. Like if you've got main ridge lines, what are they going? So therefore you're going to end up with wind conditions or weather conditions that are going to affect it and I'm going to be able to use one side or another better. So if it's going to be a windy day, I want to know where the main ridge lines will be that I can get perpendicular to it and get behind on the lee side and hunt there out of the wind where the deer will want to be. Same as with the thermals of where the sun is going to come up in relation to where they are. And then it's the time of year, depending on what time of year is, where the feed is. The feed's going to cycle its way around the hill, chasing the sun or getting run away from the sun because it's getting too hot. It's going to go down the valleys or then it's going to move out of the valleys when they get cold weather and the cold drops in. So the food cycle is one of the main reasons I chase the deer. I work out where their food is and that's where they want to be. And that's what I look at a map and I relate it to what time of year it is to where I think the food will be, but also where they can hide out of the weather. Food, shelter, reproduction is pretty much all a deer does in life. Uh, moving on, this one's Chris, and I don't know how you'll go with this one, Paul. Um, one go about planting Samba stalking north of the New South Wales-Victorian border under the current restrictions. They've got the game licences but hasn't stalked before. I don't know if you'd know much. I know our Hunter Valley, ADA's Hunter Valley branch have just come back from the Bondi. Um, State Forest. Um, and look, if you can't answer, I'll get Chris in touch with Marty Tan or someone up in New South Wales to, to help him out. Yeah, no, I don't have too much experience hunting north of the border there. 
So yeah, they might have to get yeah, Chris to help me out with that one a bit. We'll um yeah, we'll respond to your email tomorrow, Chris, and we'll get you in touch with someone who can give you a bit more local knowledge. Jan wants to know how does your hunt day look? As in, do you start at the crack of dawn, start low, high, work your way up, down a creek gully, contour from the top of one gully into the next, walk a ridgeline, a day in the life of poor Bogue Samba Hunter? Ah, yes. So very much <laughs> Very much weather time of year dependent, like it changes, but the consistency is it always starts well before daylight. I want to be where I'm thinking the deer want to be in the dark. I want to be that, that bit further ahead. I'm not going, I'm going to wait here and then walk in as the first light or I'm not going to get up and leave camp at first light. I want to actually be in the right area before it's first light. Normally about half an hour, sometimes an hour, depending on where I am, half an hour to an hour in front, I'd rather be there and have everything forgotten about. Like there's an area where I know I'm going to drive into a big system and the road's here and I'm going to go hunt this gully, but the system overlooks the road because you can hear cars coming. And I've got to park the car here. I'm normally parking the car there an hour before first light. So the car noise, any of the lights, any of have seen, heard from across the valley as I've parked, they've forgotten about. They have then gone on to life of not worrying about it. And it's not just the deer. It's all the other animals that the deer rely on as well. Like the deer understand that they, they live their, their life surrounded by all the animals and stuff going on. When that changes slightly, they're smart enough to pick up on them signals. So the the birds, the kangaroos or other animals that change their behaviour or they go a bit quieter than normal, the deer don't like that. They go, something is up, something's amiss and I'm going to change. Being that bit further in front of them, you tend to let everything else forget about you. When that's whether I'm going in dark of early morning or if I'm going for an afternoon hunt, it's always that sort of mentality. I want to be further in front. I generally hunt sideways. I like to get an elevation about that three quarters way up and hunt sideways. Either the deer come up to me in the morning as they're feeding, but sometimes the food's up the top of the hill and they're dropping down to that, 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 that bed level, that living sort of level. So they might be coming down depending on where the food happens to be. But roughly that sort of right level is I do a lot of contouring. I don't do a lot of walking up and down hills. That's too much hard work. I try to get at the right level and then contour. So whether I had to start at the top, drop down, or I started at the bottom and I walked up, I tend to want to get to a rough level and then just stay that level and contour around being in the right zone the deer hopefully are in. As the day gets older, I often, like if I hunt the lake and hunt out of a boat at the bottom, go up, sacrifice one gully, get half to three quarters way up, and then I'll contour away and I might slowly just gradually get higher and higher as I go until I'm sort of the top end of three quarters. I might have started half, get up to three quarters as I go along. So when you say sacrifice a gully, you mean you know you're going to fill that thing with scent, but you need to do that to get to the elevation yep. where you need to hunt. Yep, yep, and I'll just walk up it. Because if my scent's going up and I'm not trying to be quiet, I'm not trying to, like, sneak, I'll just pick a ridge line that my scent's going to be on the right, on, on, on the left-hand side of as I'm going up or, or the right-hand side, but I'll only drop off that ridge line sort of 30, 40 metres enough to, that my sound won't travel over and down and I'm not silhouetted to be seen, and then I'll just literally walk as the fastest pace I can. I will cover ground to get to a right level. That scent's gone up that gully, I'm not going to bump into a deer if I happen to, well, that's so be it. I'll, I'll wear that one, but you just sort of pick one side and go, yep, I'll get the elevation as sort of quick as I can, then I'll be in front. Walking around the dark headlamp, but if you get your hands on one with a red light, much better, you disturb a lot less things and it's harder to be seen. You walk a bit slower because you can't see as well, but you disturb less things. Cameron wants to know, uh, there's one about how long we'll 
Thanks, Lars. We've covered that. Uh, what are the pros, cons of using trail cams to scout new areas? Are they worth it for those of us starting out? Definitely. Just don't fall in the trap of all the good photos you're going to see. People put them out, put them on wallows, put them on signpost trees, put them on preaching trees, put them on high areas that they know and they're simple. Like, so wallow, deer definitely come here. They don't give you, they give you deer population. They might give you quality of antlers or quality of the, the trophy potential in your area, but they don't give you kind of huntable patterns. Well, I had trail cameras set up on wallows and they didn't come off them for three years. They were left there on three different wallows and all I do is ever go with a card and SD and three years I left them strapped to the same trees. And I'd never, ever once found a pattern that I could thought they were huntable with the exception of after rain. They come to the wallow more frequently after a good rainfall. Apart from that, I tend to put them in areas of movement. So find feeding areas where there's high deer numbers, high traffic number, like footprints, I should say, not just deer, and droppings. And you can see there's high activity. There's lots of footprints, there's lots of dropping. That's a feeding area. Find the main, the main the game trails that lead in and out of those areas. And then your main highway is leaving that, that spot. Put them overlooking those areas and then get a time frame. It's easy if you get access to all your hunt backs of some private property and they're going out to a hunt fringe country. That becomes easy because they're going back and forth to the fringe country. You get back 100 metres in the bush line, find the main game trails, put them over it. But gully systems, find a nice gully, good creek, good feeding area. You can do exactly the same. But you'll get a pattern of the deer's movements, that they're coming daily or they're not coming daily. But when they do, they're coming down at, at, at 5.30 in the afternoon and they're going back via that way at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock in the morning. You'll find a pattern that goes, you know what, I need to be in that zone this time of day to intersect these deer. And you'll find in areas, they'll, they'll, they'll do a feeding pattern. They'll, they'll come into an area from one way and they'll leave the other. So if an evening, they like to feed down this side. But then in the morning, they like to go that way. Having those patterns means that in the morning, you know to hunt these gullies because that's the way they go home. On the afternoon, if you hunt, you've got to come from the other way and hunt that because that's the gullies they feed down. And they'll just do that cycle. And the cameras over those movement areas will get you a lot of success. It'll take the shortcut. Just make sure you set the time and the date on there because if you don't, you'll then have to kind of scratch your head as um, Adrian is probably watching remembers that it doesn't help us pick out the time frame of the deer cycle when it says they walk past in the dark, but it happened to be 11.50 at daytime on the camera. So, yeah, make sure you set the camera dates on it so you get that pattern in time that you can relate to. Or you've got to stand in front of it, take photos with your watch so you can, can calibrate what time that actually is. All right, I've got one more that was emailed in and then we get to the, the live Q&A that's racking up steadily. This one's about binos. So what binos to use and what should, what should someone look for when they're in the market for binos. So I suppose more quality and, and size rather than you know, saying what brand you use, but you know, people yep. have preferences. Yeah, yeah, brands sort of preference. It's you're basically any optics, whether it's binoculars, whether it's your scope, spend the most you can afford. I'd definitely tell you go and buy an $800 gun and put a $2,000 scope on it. Like if that's your budget, don't put... A $1,500 gun with $1,500 scope is still going to be good, but I'd go buy an $800 gun and put $2,000 scope on it, not the vice versa. The higher end in your optics, the, the, that's where the difference really happens. They, they see better in low light and low light conditions, and people just jump to the standard conclusion of oh, early morning, late afternoon. And it is. I've sat there with customers, and I can give them whatever I've got. I'll have Zeiss and Swarovski and Leica binoculars and go here, play with them. And they go, oh, my binoculars aren't that quality, but 
I reckon it was only the last 10 or 15 minutes that you could still see that I couldn't. And, yeah, that, that's a factor. But go out hunt on an overcast, dark day and then find the deer sitting in the tea tree or under the bush or in a bit of blackberries, and I can still see the detail to tell you what's the deer sitting there, and you're looking and go, oh, it's a dark blob and I can't pick which end I'm looking at. And I'm going, oh, it's got ears and it's a little four-pointed stag. That's that extra detail. So I like 10 power. I use 10s, I use 15s, and I've used 8s. 8s work really good for general hunting in thicker bush where you're not seeing very far. 10s are much better all round. I still find deer quite happily at 20 metres, but I still see them and work them out at 250, 300 metres when 8s start to run out of distance on them. They let more light in, so you can get away with probably a cheaper pair because you get more light gathering power at an 8 power than you do in a 10. 15s, well, your 12s and 15s, if you're not used to using them, it's like getting new prescription glasses, you'll get a headache and it'll be harder to hang on to them. And that's the same with cheaper glass. Cheaper glass will make your eyes strain more and they'll, they'll make you fatigue and you won't look for them as much as you should. So spend what you can in quality. Go at 10 by 42. Get up in the quality. But when you go to a gun shop to buy them, or anywhere for that matter to look at them buy them, don't do the standard here. Here, take this set and take that set. So here, have a cheap $500 set and here's a top of the range Swarovski. Walk out, look down the street with them. It's bright and sunny. They'll look very, very similar. Find the darkest, dingiest place in the gun shop and look for details. So maybe a corner up in the shadowy corner, up in the rafters, try and find spiderweb, try and find detail. Maybe they've got a deer head mounted. Try and find the shadowy side of it and look at the hair and the quality of the hair and then get the next set and look. And one, you won't be able to see it and one, you'll be able to see every little strand of hair and you're like, ah, that's the detail you're getting in those low light conditions that you'll improve that'll help you see deer that you didn't know were deer. I've had plenty of customers I've had to go, here, have my binos. And like, oh, oh, yeah, I see what you're looking at now. But after 10 minutes of them going, I'm going, it's just standing right there looking at us. And they can't pick because their quality doesn't let them look under that bush and in that thick cover where deer live good enough. And it's like, <laughs> obviously, when you're talking that, the difference is money. Um, yes. But those really good quality optics will last you, most of us, a lifetime in hunting. It's, it's an item that you need to buy once. Where, where, where's Cole? He says, buy once, cry once. But in the price range, you you get in an okay level once you jump to about $500 price range. From that to the $1,000 plus is a big jump. It's double the price, but it's a large, large jump in quality. Going from a $1,500 pair to a two, two and a half, it's a jump, but it's nowhere near the main. It doesn't go up that same increment again. So if you're going to spend and you can afford to spend $1,200, $1,500 on them, you're going to get a pretty good handy set of binos. They're not going to be much behind a $2,000 set of binos. And, and if you don't be put off, a uh, big thing is don't be put off. If, if all you can afford is really cheap binos, by all means, please buy really cheap binos. 100%. I'd rather have someone looking at me through cheap binoculars than through a cheap scope. Yeah. And definitely, you know, they are, they are a must. They're the one thing that I normally wouldn't hunt without. And, yeah, I'd much rather you have a, a $200 set around. They're going to do better than your eyes. There's on that too that people have been caught in the trap and I've had a couple, is you can get some on the market that have this auto-focus, they call it. I don't like them at all. I like the forced focus of being able to roll and focus them through. There's a plug for me. I just sort of put up, actually jump on my YouTube channel. I just put up a video up on using binos a couple of, a couple of weeks ago and explaining how to adjust them because you've got to adjust the rings to suit your eye because one eye will be slightly different. So if you don't adjust them, 
properly to suit both your eyes, you won't get as good a look. But you want to be able to roll and focus through stuff. And even cheap binos will let you do that. You'll be able to see the bushes and your eyes aren't focusing through them. Just kind of like thinking about raindrops on a windscreen of a car. You can look at the individual rain rolling down or you can stare through them. Don't even notice that they're there and see the road. Our eyes do that, but binoculars do it better. So they'll let you sort of search your depth through the bush. And I roll and scroll them to look in and out of the bushes all the time. So even cheap ones, you might lose being able to see a bit more detail in dark areas, but you can do that when your eyes can't. So that guy before that said he bumped in a deer, if he maybe got used to using his binos and sort of looked through the bush a little bit before, before he popped out of the bush, he'd already seen through and realised the deer was there before they knew he was there. They make a massive difference for that, finding that little bit of something you wouldn't see by eye. I'll move on. Um, Dean had a question about that you basically answered, I think. So David wants to know... Any advice on hunting, scouting new areas outside the high country with low numbers of deer? Um, so he's talking about finding deer in the western part of the state. The, the main one is um, kilometres. Kilometres on your feet. Do the hard yards, but also not just on your feet. Find the area, happily drive around, and Barry will know what I'm talking about, track the road out. As for the non-hound hunter, that means drive around at 20 kilometres or less per hour and look out the window and look for deer sign, look at every game trail you can find, crossing the roads, find the movement where they're crossing roads. That'll let you cover a lot of area easily and you can find if there's any movements where they're moving more frequently than others. And then apart from that, it's actually get out and do some walking. Walking in and out as many gullies. That's the main way I start any new area that I've never been to is basically walk. I, take, I might take a gun, I might not, but I go for a bush walk, armed or otherwise and just cover the ground to have a look. Might matter about it as much as, oh, the deer are definitely here. It's where they are, where they're shootable as well. I've got areas that I know that I can nearly guarantee any day of the week, any time of the year, that deer live in this gully. And I've been hunting for nearly 20 years and I have never, ever once shot or had a customer shoot a deer in that gully. I shoot them when they exit that gully. That gully is just too well set up, too thick, where they hide. I can't get angles to shoot them before they see me, or I can, and I'm only looking at legs and parts of deer because it's thick. But I know they live there, and I shoot the deer that exit in and out of it all the time. So I shoot a lot of deer around it and because of that gully, but not that gully. And that was only because I walked and covered ground. I went, okay, that's hard, that's better. This this little window is a good shooting lane. Cover the area, find where they want to be. But, yeah, track roads out is a big help, covers a lot of ground, and we'll find any sort of sign you can, and then start on foot. Oh, good answer. Uh, now that regional Vic, this is from Nathan, now that regional Vic can finally travel and there'll be um, people saying woohoo and there's probably 150 or 200 people on the call having a quiet sob into their whiskey right now. Um, starting to plan my first backpack hunting adventure, how far would you recommend to hike on a first backpack trip? Yeah, probably first one, not that far. I'd only be going in probably the equivalent of a really half a day sort of walk in. You don't want to be in there and realising that that's the first trip and you haven't got stuff quite sorted as well and being stuck further than that in. Yeah, I'd only be sort of making my way in yeah, probably only a couple of hours walk in. Enough that if first night goes well, well, you can extend your camp and go further in, but if stuff is not quite up to what you thought, last thing you want to do, and I've been there with people and I've had it and they've got in there and then realised that their sleeping gear and stuff wasn't quite to the spec or whatever they expected to be in for this 
up high alpine stuff that drops to zero and one minus one and two degrees and they weren't comfortable and they didn't sleep real well they you don't want to be tired and fatigued and then trying to make a massive hike out because it's that sort of tired and fatigued is when you start to not think straight you start to make mistakes i've watched people basically almost tell me that uphill is not uphill because they've started to be dehydrated and lose their mind a bit and not sort of stressing out and can't get out so don't put yourself under too much pressure to start with a smaller, closer one and then work your way out to further and further once you've got more comfortable with the gear and the way it works. You're probably having to go that far. It's probably been pretty quiet in the bush, so start close to the roads. The deer won't be that far away. Question here from Aaron, um, and this will be a good one for you to answer because hopefully Aaron can teach his old man a few things, um, both about samba hunting and about how to you know, get around without hurting yourself and be a bit more sensible in life. Hey, mate, I do a heap of homework on planning weekend trips from Google Earth from home. Is it possible for you to show us on Google Earth what sort of gullies and saddles you'd focus on and why? I know near all of it has to be done on the foot in bush, but it'd be good to see what factors you consider when planning trips on Google Earth. Um, I don't know if you're able to bring that up on your screen or not. Or... Well, I covered that before. The main things that I look for is not... It's not the terrain as much because I've been let down by that so much. <clears throat> I, I, I'd rather get a topographical out and get the real idea of the, how steep it is to work out whether I'm cross gully hunting it or whether I'm hunting it on the same level and the same face because it's sort of flatter, more opening. Like is it areas, well, on a topographical map, I can take sizes and stuff and go, okay, I can, that's shootable. That's 200 metres across that gully, it's 250, whatever. It's shootable range across it. It's more to do with directions of, of gullies and gully heads to what they are in relation to where the sun is, to where the food is going to be for that particular time that you're going there. Then it becomes whether you're going alpine or subalpine. Once you get to sort of alpine and you've got snow level area, that, that top snow level area changes. It's become sort of a nearly microclimate of its own where the food level changes at times a year compared to lower lying sort of subalpine. So mine's based on on sun movement and food movement to when I'm looking at a map to where I think that's going to put me more than anything else. And then it's having a look at the terrain sort of firsthand. I've, I've had areas and we thought it was fantastic, this new area we scouted up not far below the border and it looked great and looked everything until we got there and what looked like nice grassy open faces was kind of undergrowth and stuff that was eight foot tall and we end up being like swimming and stuff and having to find a whole new area. So it's more more to do with the the directions of the gullies and the relation to where food will be that I look at on them maps than the actual terrain. Finding rocky areas and stuff is good. I will focus on trying to have a look at them because they do let me know that it's actually like steep enough country. You've got rock face and rock formation that you probably get more open sort of stuff. But having a back out that I can go to somewhere. If a thick area is too thick, my normal go-to is get on the northwest or west face where it gets all that afternoon heat and sun tends to be a lot more open than anywhere else on that sort of on that sort of thicker terrain if it is overgrowth and thick. Well, we've got um, three questions here on the Samba caller. Yep. So I'll, sort of, I'll roll them into one. So Connor's looking yeah. for There we go. We'll get plenty of plugs in. There's, there's three questions here. So <laughs> um, Connor's looking for any advice and experience. Ricky's lucky enough to be up the bush at the moment and hunting today. Walked up a couple of deer that went up an opposite face. One call on your caller and I couldn't believe it. Yeah, this is, I can't make shit up. Do you know Ricky Paul, is this a plant? Nah, um, not that I know. 
Hine comes straight back to me within five minutes for a 20-minute standoff. Stag then came back to investigate, giving me an opportunity to harvest things. Harvesting certainly has changed things. I've been trying it for the last couple of months with some interesting results. This is the first time it's happened, so thanks, mate. And Rob, uh, before lockdown, I was using your elk caller just before dusk, and I had a great 20-minute back-and-forth honking session with a samba. Started to walk towards me but couldn't call it in. How have you found the caller after having it for some time now? So a couple of good comments and questions on the caller. Yeah, I still I haven't used it as much as I would have liked because of lockdown and not being out of the bush as much as I would like, but I've had all sorts of mixed responses. I had one when I thought I got the call like pretty wrong. It was actually a really, really squeaky high pitch when I first early got it. And I had 60 run out of the gully. Not to me. But then I'm the hang on, try to adjust to get a better sound and I'm going like that. To then still look back up and the stag and a hind had actually stopped and walked back because I kind of must have got it a bit more on the right frequency and had a look at me. Um, I've had others that I've just put a video up not long ago on my YouTube that a spiky and a customer we had, he just basically ignored us once he re- once we made the call. He went from full alert, I missed the, the bark on the camera, but I got him stomping. And then I blew the call and he went, eh, okay. And then he put his head down and I went, oh, he's coming, get ready, he's going to walk to us. And then he dipped in the dip and he didn't come. And we thought, oh, that's a bit odd. So we sort of start harped up and walked and he just went back to feeding. And he eventually, he, like, we moved out and he paid no attention to us. So, and I've had that happen a couple of times since, is that like they just assume you're another deer and kind of forget that what that movement is, is deer, is they put it down as deer related, not danger related, and they ignore it. I've had yeah, others come right up to me. My first deer I shot with a call, that sort of blew me away. I was not at all prepared for that. They were hunting the back of a bit of a private property farm up here I got, and the deer were just in the tea tree, and they normally are, and they normally pop out just on last light. And it's sort of, oh, yeah, you sort of get a shot at it right at the last light, just on the edge of the tea tree. And I thought, I'll try the call. And I sat behind one big tree, and I kind of hid myself and had it all hidden in there. And, Blast the call and yeah, I could see them. There was about four or five of them moving around and oh yeah. So I thought, oh, they, they actually come down a little bit and they can see the movement a little bit closer where I started on the shooters. I get the camera ready and I messed around and get the camera out of my bag and set the camera up. It took me a minute or two and when I put the camera up and got it ready, I looked to my right and the deer was standing there eight metres to the right, the other side of the tree staring at me. So I just lifted the gun up quietly and shot him. He managed to go 100 metres across the paddock. He must have ran. I don't know how he... I didn't notice him come out of the bush. He was just there staring at me going, what are you doing? Uh, I shot him. So sometimes they literally run and come straight to you. Other times they just ignore you. I've had hinds in full flight, like bark and I'm out of here, blow the call, stop, turn around and then walk back 10 metres and go, what was that? And then you can shoot him or not. But it's not going to work on every deer. I've got video, hopefully I'll post up soon. I've got to get it off a corrupted hard drive that I'm not very happy about at the moment. But it was a, it's the actual natural sound that I filmed. Like I first heard that noise probably nearly 20 years ago. I didn't know what it was until mum made the noise back from the fawn. He was fawn with making noise in blackberries. Mum was staring at me. Mum made the same noise, fawn ran over, stood on a mum. And I went, ah, oh, penny dropped a bit. And I tried to mimic that call for many years vocally with my mouth. As early, some of my early YouTube videos, you can see me mimicking it, trying to play around with other calls to mimic it before I managed to get my hands on this call. And it's... Always been sort of mixed results, but stags too. I've heard that when stags, when they've wallowed, they make they make a very similar sort of sound, same sort of noise. 
I've heard them do it when they rub trees and I've heard them do it when they're fighting. They'll actually make it like as initial communication between each other while they're fighting. So it, it'll get a big mature stag in the right time to come to you. The point with big mature ones is they don't get big and mature without being cautious and being the fact they're a stag, they're, they're very arrogant and very about themselves. And they really don't care about other deer for many other reasons than breeding at one point in time a year and the rest of it, they ignore it. So they're not kind of as social, they're a bit more antisocial. So that window of getting a big stag to come to you is going to be a lot harder because they really don't want to go near any other deer unless she's in season and she's in the right mood. Apart from that, he's like, go away. He doesn't really care. So getting him to come will we'll work on the right day, but I think it's limited to only a small sort of windows each time. But it does definitely get attention. I had probably, I'll have to find the video because it's on that same corrupted hard drive, about a nice 26 or 27-inch tag. He went and sat down in some thick tea tree. And he's sitting there bedded and we could see him. He wasn't real good to look at because he was sitting there and you could just sort of make him out a bit. We blew the call a couple of times and it got him to stand up, take two body lengths forward to the edge of the tea tree and now stand there like semi-exposed staring to work out what was going on. And that's all he did. He stood there for 10 or 15 minutes and then he turned and went back, sat down where he was but it got him to move out of his bed. And I've given one to a mate and he's done the same. He's been looking at deer and they're sitting in some, some regrowthy stuff and bracken fern gullies and that. And he goes, you see the antlers in their head, but you've got nothing to aim at. And he's a pretty good shot. So he shot a couple of the stags. He's trying to shoot in the head. And I keep telling him, it's not something I really recommend you to do. Stop doing it. He's like, but that's all I could see. But I gave him a call and now he blows the core and he goes, now they just, they stand up and I shoot him in the chest. So I did change it. Like it doesn't have to mean run to me commit suicide, but getting a deer to stand out of his bed and give you a perfect side-on shot is still a big help. Oh, well, give us a blow. That, that didn't sound right. Um, of the <laughs> caller. Of the caller? All righty You can do a short one. That's probably one most popular one doing that, just that little short beep, and that's it. I've tried lots, multiple calls and done over and over. I don't think it got me any more results. When I've heard the natural ones, and if I find and manage to get the video up, literally sitting with a customer, and you hear one bleep, and then mum gets out of her bed and walks 200 metres straight line to it, and then goes and checks her forms okay. And that's all it was, is one single bleep. No other, no continuous calls. I don't know whether we can call too much and scare them off yet. I will try that just to see whether I can. I'll see if I can get one really annoyed and just leave me alone, but they do, yeah, do come to it. That normal one, short one, tends to work quite well. I don't draw it out or make it, you've got to bite it enough to not get that fanny sort of harmonica kind of sound to it. Just a bite it enough, takes that out and gives that short sort of sharp sound. That's about all I ever do. But I'll keep playing. I'll keep putting videos up and if I can find anything that works better or, or worse, I'll happily tell you. And like you said, they're not the be-all and end-all samba hunting, but it, it's, just, it's fun to have another element. Um, that vocal element, I know a lot of people really love that about fellow deer hunting and it's sort of fun to to introduce that to Samba hunting and have a bit of fun talking to them. Yeah, oh, and that, that will make, I think, probably 8 or 9% of them stop and give you that, that window. Like a red deer often does when they run away and turn and go, last check before I leave, it'll pull a lot of them up. The trick with it that I go, I'll give to you is, is when you do that, do it fraction before you think you want to shoot it. So if it's running to, and there's a slight gap where you go, that's a good little window to shoot it in, call it before it hits that, give it that, few seconds for it to hear the sound and respond to pull it up in the middle. Take a bit of practice, but I've done it with customers. I had a customer down from Sydney and I 
it broke when he didn't shoot. I went, break that gap, and I pulled up. And she got to the gap, and we pulled up. But I called that sort of three metres before she got to the gap on the run, and she pulled up and went, oh, what was that? And that was perfect time for him to shoot. I don't know how long she'd stand still for because he took about three seconds to shoot it. Uh, there's um, three sort of questions broadly on on food, so I'll roll them into one. Uh, Luke wants to know what sort of plants and grasses should he be looking for. Um, Luke primarily hunts fallow. A- Andrew's what's the daily diet of a deer and how does it change through the year? And Lee is what are their main food source? So I suppose answer it with a bias towards Samba because... You know, different deer eat different things, but yep. Uh, yeah, the bias towards Samba is Samba eat everything. <laughs> I had and I loved it 88 years ago, brought out their little browse plants and stuff. And I had the little and I checked them all and I learned all their names. And they do have preferences that different sort of plants, but it's very much seasonal. And then it's very much how much pressure's on the food, what sort of conditions we're having, how good is the season, is there lots available. I think Samba are kind of a very uh, snobby kind of animal that they want the choice cuts of the choice bush at any given time. So when conditions are good, that's living on caviar, so that's living on the best available. But when conditions are bad, they'll eat anything they can to survive. But generally they take the freshest, nicest shoots of any given plant that's coming into season. Like I didn't think they, for years, I didn't think they ate pine, but I've filmed them and watched them. They definitely don't mind eating pine needles. They'll eat everything that's got a prickle or a thistle on it, but it's basically the freshest shoots. So if you're observing where you're paying attention where you're walking around and you'll notice plants that have got the new green shoots that are just that lighter colour, that's the bits they tend to go to. And it's often the last couple of centimetres or an inch off that plant that's all they're nibbling. And they nibble and the same when they eat grass. They tend to just nibble, nibble, and they move around in this random weird pattern to the point when I'm trying hard to get my hands on a, on a camera that will film in ultraviolet. I think that's something to do with their eyesight to the way they look at it, that those fresher shoots look slightly differently because it's not like they look for it. They know that that branch, that pants, that branch there, you'll even notice that often with trees and stuff, you'll start to find them broken at a certain level. Sandra will happily get a tree branch if that's my branch being the arm. And up here is too high to reach. They'll put their mouth around it and literally snap it to then eat this bit. And you'll find it at that certain level where they just snap lots of branches over to eat the fine bits at the top and they'll just keep it trimmed down that way. But they don't leave browse in like, with the exception of breaking branches or high populations in a bad sort of time when they're eating whatever they can. Often if it's good conditions and they're just a normal population, they don't leave a lot of evidence of eating. They just nibble all that stuff off. And unless you look hard, you don't even see it. But it's always the freshest shoots. So pay attention to not just that, but pay attention when you look in the bush to when your elevation changes, if you're down the bottom of the valley or top of the hill, of how the bush looks. If it looks dull and flat and consistent-looking branches, leaves and stuff, it's probably not that fresh growth. So maybe try to change your elevation, try your, your angles on the hill, and that'll say, oh, hang on, this gully has got fresh shoots on lots of stuff or this elevation has fresh shoots, that's where the feed is at the moment. That's where the deer are going to be feeding and they're not going to be that far away from a bed. So it's and been... That's, that's the truism of deer species around the world. Samba will be different in eating that prickly stuff, but eating those fresh tips. We had um, Professor Craig Harper out from the States last year who's an expert on this stuff and that's where the sugar is. That's um, that's what they're chasing is. It's really palatable. It's, it's where all the sugar is in that really fresh growth and that's what deer... Any species of deer will prefer to eat. 
They'd rather they'd rather walk and eat those fresh bits off fifty different bushes than eat one entire bush. Really? That's what it is. They'll find it. Different times of year, they like different sort of things. Improved pasture will change it, but the stinging, um, yeah, like stinging. They like they eat stinging nettle at the right time of year. I don't know how they stomach that. That's horrible stuff to touch, and they eat it. But also, oh, you yeah, no, nah, not pretty good for but like stinging nettle. They eat stinging nettle. I don't know how they eat stinging nettle, but you're, you're um, oh, I just said it and I've lost the name of it again now. Your thistles, your scotch thistles. The right time that flower head, when all the sugars get to the flower head before it opens up and goes to seed, they go and like and suck them out like little lollipops. They like eating them with that high sugar content. Briar rose can be the same. I don't mind a bit of briar rose when they can get all that at the right time. I need the rose hip off it. I'll move on, um, Nicholas, and I suspect you probably know Nicholas. Can you please ask Paulie where the local 30 inch is hiding and can I tip the dogs on it? <laughs> yeah, you know where he's hiding. He's hiding behind a dozen hinds and three fawns, two spikies, an 18 inch and about a 24 inch. And he knows exactly every one of those address and he'll take it every one of them until you get rid of all the competition in his friends and he runs out of people to go and find to play with. Um, Lawrence has got a question. I find it very difficult to determine the age of rubs on trees. Sometimes I feel like it's minutes old. Obviously I'm wrong because there's no deer there. What do I need to look for? Very hard because all trees age differently, but normally use a knife, something you can scrape the tree yourself to see the colour and the colour change. And if it's actually fairly similar, it's probably not that old, but some trees will go from a white to a green or a green to a white or back to an orange and some start off really orange and they change at different rates. The best way is normally the footprint's hanging around it. They put a fair bit of pressure in pushing to, to rub the tree and so the footprints, and if you think the footprints are looking fresh and you think, you know what, they're good, they're here and there's enough soil, the soil's soft enough you can see them well, the trick that I always got taught was go backwards. So if you think it's actually pretty fresh but you're not convinced, walk backwards. If you follow the marks backwards, a lot harder than forwards. But if you, yeah, then you might be able to find droppings to help then tie it all in. The droppings are fresh, the footprints are fresh. The deer is probably, the rub tree is probably fresh too. I actually started dogs on a stag. My dad's got a 30 inch, my dad's got on the wall. And that's, I found him by, by rub treatment. That looks really good. And then backtracked 150 metres. So I found all his footprints and his droppings. I mean, he is, and then we come and got him. But sort of, I use the, 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 the footprints and stuff on the ground way more than the actual tree. Trees are, are quite hard to pick. It's just a matter of, Comparing the pair, really, with a bit of judge and scratch the tree and then have a look yourself. How green or how red or orange that looks compared to the other one. Some just hold it better than others. Um, there's a couple of questions on shot placement and stuff. So we'll roll them in. Alan was asking about sort of shot distance and long shots. And Michael's asking about, um, so it's great talk, Paul. And what's your preferred shot placement, you know, high shoulder spine versus heart lung? Um, so, yeah, if we can talk about both about distance of shot and preferred placement. All right. Yep. Well, distance of shot is really preference on your capability. That's why I make people that come with me do a shot shooting training course because it's it's not about how far you want to shoot. It's not about how well the gun's going to perform. It's how you can perform more than anything. And that is just literally practice. Buy all the best equipment, but if you don't practice and use it, you will never get good at it. And I tell you with the Samba, get yourself something of a six-inch diameter target. One of the best and easiest simple things if you can to practice with is a balloon. If you can get yourself a balloon, you blow the balloons up to about a six-inch level. Actually, I've got that on the slide here if you want me to show you the slide. If we can get that to work, that screen sharing, I can put that on. 
Yeah, I've, I've set you up for it, I believe. I'll see um, if I can do it. See if that works. See if we get technology to work. Hit play there. Did that work? Uh, we practiced this earlier today. <laughs> Hopefully it works. Can you see if it's working? Yeah. So the balloons on the sticks is what I go for, see? And blowing them up to that sort of six-inch diameter, you've got to pick the point of aim. Like if you look at the target there, it has a point of aim. It has a little tiny one-centimetre by one-centimetre red dot and you're drawn to aiming at it. Animals don't have that. They have the body and you've got to make up the decision on, on based on the angle of where that aiming point is. But a balloon gives you that sort of practice of that and it pops. So there's no relevance to how well you group because you're grouped and you get your gun shooting well, then the rest is getting you shooting well. It's popping that. And whatever distance that I can say that I put a handful of balloons out and you can pop them is at six inches diameter is what I'd be going, that's confident that you can shoot a deer at. So if you put them out at 300 metres and you can pop, you put half a dozen out there and you had six shots or eight shots and you popped them all, that's a pretty confident distance that you'll shoot a deer at 300 metres because their kill zone on Sam is a lot bigger than a six-inch circle. So if you work on that six-inch circle, that gives you more room for error and room that you and the deer can move and things change. But if you're confident in hitting a six-inch target consistently at a certain distance, that's the distance I'd say go shoot Sam at and get used to just that. Like pop the balloon. Who cares if you hit the middle or the edge? Sam is on the sand. But when you shoot it, I tell people just to aim for that centre point on his chest because if it goes a little high and you get high shoulder lung, that's great. Drops a little low and you get lung into heart, that's great. Goes a little forward, you still got front shoulder and, and front and half lung. Or goes a little back and you got lung liver, you still got a dead animal. And that's the end of the day is you're trying to kill it as humanely as we can. So I work on giving myself more room for error if we go that way. So we look at the deer, we've got to work out body structure and understand how the animal works to know where everything is in relation to what you want to shoot. So... Centre of the deer would be great. It'd be nice if they had a nice target on for aim at. But that's basically my aim point, is centre. Allowing that going up, down, forward, backwards will kill it. Like I've shot plenty of them and I'll often take that slightly higher shot rather than lower. If, it, if I'm really confident, got a good rest, whatever, and I'm going, you know what, I'm going to hit it right where I want. I'd rather a high shoulder than, than a low shoulder, but I generally aim in the middle. Just put it in the middle, allow for movement. I have watched deer step out of the way of my bullet and just scratch my head because I've seen it happen and just didn't quick enough stop myself pulling the trigger. I've seen them duck and go under them. Things happen that are out of your control and you'll end up hitting them worse than you wanted to if you try and take what you think of a bit more clever shot. I would rather a simpler aim in the middle. If you look there, you hit any of them, heart, lungs and liver, you're going to kill that deer. The scapula is great to the fact that if you hit that high shoulder and take a scapula, it throws a lot of bone fragments through. Throwing bone fragments in the scapula from, from the rib puts a lot more damage into the lungs rather than just the bullet wound channel, which does damage, but that more bone fragment damage does a lot more, kills the deer a lot faster, a lot quicker and more humane. So I, I like that whole shoulder that it throws that bone fragment in there as well. And it's like a little grenade going off. And the same token, you're taking out the lungs, you're taking out the ability to run because it can't breathe, can't run. But also you're breaking their legs, making it harder to run at the same time. So then deer often don't go very far. Nice front middle shoulder shot on a deer doesn't go far. But it's remembering they're three-dimensional. <clears throat> so that angle is constantly changing of where that centre point is. And it's thinking about it all the time that you don't have to put them on the shoulder if they're slightly 
this deer, that slight angle there, hitting that scapula is not ideal. You want to be back behind that scapula because you're going to hit the scapula, take some of the lungs, but a lot of neck. But coming back and being in line with, say, the back of his front leg, the closest front leg, back of that, halfway up his body, that puts you in the middle of most room for error is what I like. Giving yourself the fact that things happen, it moves, you move, you end up missing your desired aiming point by six inches and you've still got a dead deer. If you aim small, you miss small, but also if you aim small in the middle of a big target, you're more likely to hit it in a good spot if something does go wrong. So that's where I tend to straight there, nicely placed middle of that chest. You look at it when it looks on here, we can flip back and forth. We can see number two down the bottom heart, lung is a large area, and four the liver. They're all they're all guaranteed dead. They cannot live with a whole a bullet through any of them. Liver will take a longer if it's not a great liver shot, but it will bleed out and it will die. So that's your backup worst case. You end up back too far and punch the liver. Ideally, you want take take out lungs. And that so leads us on to another another really good question. Um, which is related, which is how will deer react to it to the shot? So you know, a solid hit versus a miss versus a um, versus a shot that might be you know back in the liver or or even heart. Yep. Okay, they they do react very differently depending on where you've hit them. The general response on a sandbar is when they're well hit, is they take off like they're not hit. I've filmed dozens and dozens of them getting shot and I'm sitting there going to the customer that looks like a good shot to then review the footage and go hey, you completely missed it or you know I ran away looked good I don't know to look at it and go you've hit that perfect when you slow the footage down can be in real life real speed you can be quite hard to pick because they react and tend to run off things that I do look for in a reacting kind of deer when they do leave is that the fact that they leave it's instantaneous if you actually get the recoil come back down and you see the deer react, that is not good at all. That is more than likely you have missed. If it's a delayed reaction, it's often a reaction to the sound of the bullet whistling past or going and slapping the ground near it that spooks it. The other main response is, is a forward motion. If the initial response, whether you've seen it or not, you've got someone with you, or if you happen to film your shot, it's nearly always and I mean 99.9% forward because they're reacting to the pain. They don't hear the gunshot. They don't know anything's going on. It's that muscle tightening up of being hit that the forward movement is the natural spring forward. And even it might be spring forward, the one body length, turn hard left, hard right, but it's always forward and it's always instant. It's not a delayed duck and then look around and go, oh, that's not good and run off. That is generally a missed deer that's heard the whistle of the bullet whip past and it's ducked to the sound, and then it's gone, I don't know, but I'm getting out of here. And then it runs away. That's a bad sign. If a deer has a delayed response, not good. As for placement, internally hit deer, internally done lots of damage, that heart, lungs, liver shot, they can go a fair way, but they leave very little blood, generally, because it's sending all the blood, the resources to the internal engine area, so your heart, lungs, liver, trying to keep them alive, that you're not expelling it on, on flesh-wounded areas as much. So they're restricting the flow there, bringing a back flow to in the heart, lungs, and liver, trying to keep them alive. So they mightn't have a great blood trail. Your heart is basically a pump. And they've got a lot of blood and it's designed to pump the blood around. 
they go a long way with a hole through their heart. I've seen them shot and their heart basically blown into two and they still run hundreds of metres. It's not something that's going to just make them drop on the spot. The only thing that tends to make Samba collapse on the spot because they don't suffer hydraulic shock, which a lot of animals do, and that's the, the trauma, the impact, basically sitting in cardiac arrest and they stop and die. They absorb it and they die from the damages and the actual the damage that the bullet does to them is what kills them, the trauma and the blood loss. So they tend to react and run. So the heart, they'll run away. It's got to run out of the blood. The blood flow gets low to their brain and they fall or they drop. Lungs mean, shot through the lungs means lots of tra trauma in there. They're bleeding out. They're dying from that. But it's harder to run, harder to move. I broke, I broke three ribs here and punched my right lung. I couldn't get out more than one and a half words, let alone walk far. I had no breath to do it. So damaging lungs means they can't kind of run so far. You don't, if you only take out a little bit of lungs, they can. I have had a deer that made it four and a half kilometres from me and I went through the top of one lung, but I damaged probably about that big of his lung and only one lung. I broke two ribs and went on a funny angle and took out part of his lung and he still ran four and a half kilometres. So they can do it, but generally damaging their lungs, they don't go that far. And it's more about not pushing them either. It's more about how you respond is how the deer responds. It's the game of... Of, of, of minimal information. Give them as little as you can. So it's it's all comes down to before you pull the trigger and after the trigger, way more important than the actual trigger bit. The trigger bit, you do the best you can. You place your bullet as best you can, but once it's done, it's done. You can't pull it back. You can't change it. It's happened. So it hit where it hit and it done what it done. Hopefully that was enough damage in the right area to cause you a deer that's going to die soon. What we can control is the situation around it. So what was a deer doing when you shot it? An alarmed deer that's alert to you runs further. So it's basically thinking about the situation. A deer that had no idea you were there, was completely calm, feeding, resting, whatever, oblivious to you, dies very easily. That's the coward punch or the king hit that, that, that hurt someone because they didn't see it coming. If the deer's alert and it's barked or it's spooked and it's got out of bed or it ran a little bit, stopped and stared at you like, I'm not sure, it's kind of ready to fight so it's got a bit more the adrenaline sitting there ready to hit the trigger so when you do it gets the adrenaline and it goes they can go a little further the one that's fully alert and you've spooked it out of bed it's seen you and it is out of there and you've gone oh there's a shot and you've taken that shot as it's going out of the gully that deer's already got adrenaline going before the bullet hit it that deer goes further again and then the next situation's throwing a pack of hounds behind it and that's like inviting a little Italian fella to hop in a ring and play rocky music there's adrenaline galore and it's more than they ever need and they, they're dead and they don't even realise they died half an hour ago. There's that much adrenaline going through them. So it's the situation beforehand makes a big difference to how they respond when you shoot them. Then the other side is that what you do from that point onwards. My golden rule is, is you sit exactly where you are for 15 minutes. Then you go to the deer. Give it no more information than it needs. The information it got will going to vary depending on the situation before you pull the trigger, but give it no more. So if it's oblivious to being there, don't give it any more. And I have got a customer that come over from Tasmania that has a really nice 28-inch stag on his wall from a very, very horrible shot that he pulled off by being nervous. And instead of hitting it in the shoulder when it's standing on a 20-degree angles, he missed that by about 10 to 12 inches and hit the very second last rib angling in from there into the back, front of the back leg, but took out the top of the liver. 
And we found that deer stone dead, 200 metres from where he shot it, because we sat down, we went very quiet, and we did nothing for 15 minutes. Then we walked to where he shot it, and then we tracked it to where it died. And it had very, very minimal damage. It literally got hit on the very second last rib and angling towards the back, and that deer died. Like, he pulled off a horrible shot, but we made it turn into a good one by letting the animal have no idea what they and let it run off and let it sit down. The stag ran and sat down, thought, I don't feel so flash, but I have no idea what's going on. So it backed itself into some thick tea tree, sat there staring down a game trail where it thought danger might come from until it passed out and died. So the situation become good because we didn't push it. If we ran to it, we watched it run past. It went from sort of out to our left when he shot above us over two little gullies to our right. And we seen it. We could have ran to that direction, but we didn't knowing that we're just going to let it sit down, give it no more info, give it no more adrenaline and nothing else to run away from. They don't have to understand the concept of a gun. So they don't know where to run or what to run away from if we don't give them anything. So don't give it to them. Let them sit down, calm down, go, I'm not sure what's going on. I don't feel the greatest, but I'll have a little rest and then they die. And you'll often find if they've got a bit of a wound, you'll find them leaning on a rock, on a log, resting on a tree, putting the pressure on the bullet wound, going, that'll take the pain away. A bit like smacking your, your thumb with a hammer. You kind of grab it and squeeze it. Ah, that hurts. And it's just changing the nerve response from being a pain response to a pressure response, tricking your own brain, makes you temporarily feel better. And deer do it a lot too. They rest on stuff. You'll often find a big stag, being that they don't go down very easily, they'll rest on a log, a rock, something, put weight on it, take the pressure away, and if you give them time, that's exactly where they stay. They go no further. If you keep pushing them, they keep running until basically they run out of blood and ability and that is hundreds of metres and making your life harder and harder. So sit on your butt, let them die, go and collect them. So hi, Paul and Barry, in regards to game management for trophy potential, would you recommend letting spikers walk to grow into stags and targeting hinds or thinning out the young stags and letting the mature stags breed the hinds? I'd, I'd add to that or both. It's a grey area mixed one. Thinning out younger animals will be better, beneficial for the herd. So getting rid of spikies is not a bad thing. Like they do have potential to grow into, into larger stags, but they also have competition for food and everything else as well. Thinning out younger hinds is also a good thing as well. Removing that demographic at random that it's not particularly have to be just hinds or stags, removing that sort of lower element out, Younger, mature stags as they're growing, taking out ones that don't kind of fit the criteria of, of, of what you want to be calling in a trophy. So the stag I shot, if people have seen it the other week, he's a, he's a large, mature animal, probably a six, seven-year-old animal. He's 27 or something one side and malformed on the other side. Removing him is great for the gene because he's not spreading that gene. It could be a gene that he actually has in him that he spreads. It could have been a damage to his body or something that caused that because they can get malformed and damaged antlers from hurting themselves, hurting their testicles, hurting part of their body, breaking an opposite leg will affect the, the next year's growth of that animal because they're spending a lot of calcium into preparing legs and bones and they can't put the same calcium into growing antlers and that affects the growth. Damaging the base of their antlers around the coronets can affect the antlers. So it's not always that a, that a, a, a mongrel animal is mongrel by blood. He could be just, he got damaged somewhere, fighting, got shot at, something changed. But... Some of them, when they grow, the trace will stay there. And I've watched animals grow over years and I've watched weird ones. I thought, you know, next year maybe, rather than having one tiny little inner and a nice inner, 
you'll go back and they don't often. They often repeat the same sort of flow as they go along. If they've got tiny little inner tops or tiny little brows or they're a bit straight up or a bit wide, they tend to keep that same trait as they grow. So you can remove ones that you think, you know what, even if you grew another eight years, you're still not a great-looking deer. Remove them. Takes pressure off food. They need food to grow antler growth. Removing certain females and taking pressure off the herd but leaving older mature females tends to get you better better antler growth. A mature, big mature hind is the only hind that will produce a big stag. She needs to be of a big mature animal to get you. The actual quality that comes from antlers and all the studies they've done on every other deer around the world, the female at least has the 50%, if not more of the potential, comes from the female than the male. She carries a lot of that in her. If she comes from good stock and she has good stock and good genes, she carries just as much as the stag does that breeds with her. So even he's not maybe the biggest stag in there, but he's great quality, a younger stag, that, and then she's of great quality being an older hind, that can produce a great stag. But a young, immature hind doesn't tend to have the body mass to produce a big fawn, and therefore it doesn't have the smarts and the whereabouts to get the best food. Plus the hierarchy in Samba is way more dominant in the hinds than it is in the stags. Females fight all year round. You just don't notice it. They, they punch on and body posture and, and stand off over bedding and over food. So the most mature hind, she gets access to the best food and the best bed and uses the least amount of energy to do both. So therefore she conserves and become better. She produces more milk. She produces a bigger fawn. She feeds it better. She teaches it all the best places and the better ways to grow and feed and better that she gives it a better sort of leg up in life as if the difference from coming from a normal everyday background compared to being born a Kerry, from Kerry Packer's bloodline and going, yeah, you're just born with lots more money. Your leg up in life is that you've got money to help you get up. In the deer world, that's coming from big mature hind gives that young, mature, immature stag fawn much better leg up in life and he tends to grow into being a much bigger, better mature animal. So removing some lesser hinds, removing some lesser stags, leaving the older ones, removing any bloodline that, that you don't seem desirable is probably the best herd management you can kind of have. It's kind of of a semi-random base which works well. It's not just particular animals. It's across the board, but the right ones. Yeah. I mean, so much of a deer's potential happens in utero. If, if they're not in a good, strong, viable hind, you can have the best genetics on earth and you're just never going to reach that big potential. Um, and, you know, same thing happens with human babies who have a have a mother who has an illness or something so it, it happens in biology throughout the species i suppose we'll do a couple more if you know a deer is better down the gully how do you approach it um depending on the, the whole situation you got to take in can we get close enough to shoot it in bed can we get in there is it an area you can see to shoot it then once you're in there is it at a spot where i could actually take a shot safely or do i need it to get out of the bed if it's a hard spot to get into I might just leave it alone go, you know what, you're there. And I've done this lots and lots with customers going, we found a deer, it's mid-morning, they're bedded there and there, but it's not an ideal kind of get in. The deer's picked a good spot, which they generally do, going, our best angle to shoot it is come this round up the gully, but that means we're most visible for the deer to see us. Or that we try to get around, the weed, the breeze is going to come bring us undone because we've got to get across the gully, the thermals go up. So then ones, I'll leave and go, you know what, I'll hunt yours in the afternoon when you get out of bed and let you come to me. So it really comes, if you can get to them without the, the thermals, the wind, it's seeing you, yeah, by all means, go and shoot it. If not, put it in the memory bank, leave it alone, go hunt another couple of gullies over, play around there for the middle part of the day, rest of the day, 
and come back to that of an afternoon and go, I'll show you when you get out of bed and you will come to me. And deer that are up, moving, active are a lot easier to hunt because they're making their own noise. They're eating, they're chewing, they're walking. Birds, other animals are active normally at feeding time. So noises, sounds, movements, you blend in a bit better. You're blending into the environment's the main thing. When the environment's quiet and the deer are quiet, it's hard to blend in. So therefore, you're a lot more chance of coming undone by a bored deer sitting there chewing his cud, looking around, and then go, what's that thing moving over there? And then sitting there staring in that general direction for the next 40 minutes will more than likely notice you. And I've had exactly that, and I've got it on camera. I should do a fast-forward version and put it up of a, of a big hind staring at me. Basically, I think she would blink for 38 minutes because it was the middle of the day and she just stepped out of her bed, stretched her legs and seen me sitting there and went, what's that weird camera thing looking at me and just stared straight in the lens of the camera for 38 minutes before she went, eh, must be nothing, and went back to life. So they're bored in that part of time. They've got more patience to look at you. Nothing to distract them, probably more importantly. This one's a good one, Gigantor. It doesn't say Gigantor. It says anonymous attendee. What recommendations do you have for walking quietly in the bush for someone who wears size 13 boots, which I don't think would worry you, Paul? But... No. no, it's feeling the way you walk. It's feeling the ground. So don't think of it as walking through the bush. Think of it as stepping through the bush, so paying attention to every step. We, we don't use, that's the sense that most hunters just don't think about using enough. We use our eyes and our ears and we're paying attention, but we don't to use the other sense of feel like you can feel the ground so actually just placing your feet and every step being that you anchor yourself to the ground with every step means that at any given point in time you can freeze knowing that whatever foot is on the ground or off the ground doesn't matter you're balanced and frozen because you've placed your good good footing but you're mapping out the way you're walking in front of you that you you're looking at the best path to step to hide yourself as well but not stepping on it but if you start to step and your foot comes down and you start to feel a crunching you can slow down Lift it up and change it slightly. Don't just walk with your feet in forward in front of each other. You might have put that one, then you might go the next step, might have to go here because that's a nice quiet spot and you miss the stick and change angles. Your body and your feet can move and change, but just pay attention and slow the way you're walking. You can't sort of walk too slow in the bush. Just pay attention and feel the ground as you're walking. You'll crunch less and it's pretty simple. Find some dry leaves and do it. Just literally step on it or place your foot on it and then slowly rotate it. The leaves still crunch, but the sound's a lot quieter and a lot less disturbing. So just take your time, part, map it out in your head a little bit as you're looking, where will I need to step, what sections will be noisy that I might have to slow down and avoid, step around, but just take your time. Size of your feet's not gonna matter. You'll be right, the odd stick breaking doesn't mean anything. If the bush is really noisy and sounds like cornflakes, that's fine. Everything that's in that bush that moves on them cornflakes, makes noise so it's the right time of day when kangaroos deer eat whatever happens to be up feeding wallabies they're all making that noise if it's that dry on the ground it's that dry on the trees the birds hopping around playing around bark chasing bug are all making that noise that they don't have to listen to it it's the noises that stand out that give us away more than anything so standard bush crackling of branches and leaves is not a dangerous thing to an animal if they ran away from all those sounds that would become much, much easier to hunt because you'd just stand still and wait for one to run past you because in every five minutes they're going to hear sticks breaking from something. So don't think that you have to be silent in the bush. Just don't make it consistent. So don't make your noises constantly crunch, 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 crunch. Stopping and starting and breaking the sound up, keeping it as minimal as you can. 
So you just blend in with all the rest of the sounds. They'll pay no attention. They'll only pay attention if you fall over, not to the fact you fell over and you crunched down the hill because if you've got 13 size boots, you're probably a big fella. You probably make a loud noise falling down, but not as loud as the tree that falls over, and they've heard lots of them. The trick is the tree didn't go, oh, crap, when it fell down the hill and sound like a human, and then it didn't keep making noise after it. It just made the initial noise went quiet. So if you slip, fall over, just sit there for 10 minutes, let everything forgot about it, move on. It's more about how you make the noise, not what noise you make. Well, we'll finish on one which is a bit of a, a twist on something that's been an issue in Victoria oh, since probably since we were pups and probably longer than that. Um, so possibly the whiskey talking. But in general, do hound hunters like stalkers? Do they hate that we, that we state forest hunt hound hunting areas? No, probably not. A lot of times we scratch our head. <laughs> and go, there's all this great accessible national park you can hunt over there that we really, really want to get into and we're not allowed to, and you're here next to us. So we scratch your head and go, that don't make sense. Like, if we had free range and go, we'd be over there where you can go and you're not going there. That confuses at times. But generally, no, nah, we don't mind. Most, most hound hunters don't mind. You get the odd hound hunter that doesn't like just people in general. He's just a grump, and that's, that's out there. Like, there's... There's 10% of the population that are just assholes and don't like people. They, that's in every aspect, whether you're a hound or a stalker or whatever. Generally, we don't like it, don't mind it, just whatever, do what you want. Just we like the honesty most of the time. Some people have been burnt. I've, I've watched people over the years, years ago, grabbing old dogs, kicking old dogs, trying to throw the dogs away, yelling at them, having a go at them, and you walk down and go, what are you doing, mate? Oh, I shot these deer stalking in my dog. <laughs> I was coming into this bailout, mate. I'm listening to him. I'm watching him. I watched you walk over and shoot it. I know you didn't do any of that. Don't lie to me. It's okay. We're not stealing your trophy. We'd, we'd, we've shot three other deer. We don't even care for the meat. If you weren't acting like a prick, I would have helped carry all of it out for you and I'd have got two mates to come and give you a hand to carry it out because you're carrying on and lying and doing all this. I'm just going to leave you and the deer here on your own. I'm, I'm going. So generally, they're just like honesty. Yeah, mate, oh, I don't know. Tell them you don't know. I don't know. I sent a deer walk past I shot it. Your dog's turned up five minutes later. Okay, so be it. Most of them don't mind. They just want the deer shot. We hunt the team. So there's, there's, there's half a dozen or ten of his anyway. One of his is only going to get to shoot that deer. We have it regardless of what it is. So every bloke already knows someone else is probably just as likely to shoot it. And if it's you that happens to be the right spot, by all means, whatever, shoot it. Been plenty of stalkers over the years. Shoot some good stags up our dogs. And he's going, congratulations. Nice work. Take some photos with them on the deer and go, okay, you're in the right spot today. Your luck, not mine. That's how it works. Just don't, yeah. The dogs are only doing what they want to do. I don't like people that blame the dogs. The dogs are just doing what they're supposed to do and the, 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 the owner of the dogs is doing the wrong thing and put them in the wrong area. Well, it's never the dog's fault. It's the owner's fault. But dogs go wherever the deer goes. So they might have started with all good intentions miles and miles away from where they are. Because it's not uncommon for a Samba, especially a young, immature stag, to decide that he wants to run back to mum and have spent all summer wandering around, finding new habitat to get away from dad and the other bigger boys that are kicking it out. You put dogs on it and the first time I think it goes, oh, crap, I've never had this before, but mum will know what to do. And it runs straight line 40 kilometres away and is back in the middle of the National Park where it ain't allowed to be, but you started it 20 kilometres away from there. That happens from time to time. You don't want to get there and go, oh, we, didn't, we didn't plan on being here. I've found them in the middle of National Park where we couldn't be. And I've walked in with Ad 
guns and there's a stalker and I'm like, I'll just come to collect my dog. I just want to get him out, go home and find another deer. So generally, most stalkers, most hunters don't mind each other. If you find a, a, a one that's grumpy on a particular day, just don't tar us all with the same brush. Just go, here's a grumpy guy today, whatever, move on. The next town, honey, bother you, probably a great bloke. And, and it comes down to, I think we've come a long way in the last 20 years or so, certainly in my time in the scene. It comes down to something. You'll see it on the front of Australian Deer magazine. You'll see it on just about everything we put out. It comes down to respect. Treating people how you want to be treated. Um, a bit of understanding and a bit of respect goes a long way. On that, we'll wind it up. Um, there's still a mountain of questions that we didn't get answered and they're still coming in. Like I said, we could be here till Cole said at the start of this, we could be here till three in the morning, uh, but we won't be. Uh, do you want to give a, a general plug for sort of who you are and what you do for anyone who's been living on Mars for the last five or six years and doesn't know, Paul? Yeah, well, I, uh, I run education courses. So everything we've sort of touched on and talked about is what I do for a job. I do it in basically one-on-one sort of situations or small private groups. I do do a few bigger groups at times, but it's, 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 uh, it's just teaching people at whatever level you are. The fact that I'm fourth generation and all I've ever done is live and breathe Samba deer means that I had the, the benefit of me, myself personally, plus all my family around me making hundreds of mistakes that we learned from. So we got good at it because we, we, we made a lot of mistakes along the way. So that's what sort of I do for a job is I train and teach people. I got, I'm all over Facebook and Instagram. A lot of these, if you, some of the questions you asked, I've been starting an actual, my, on my YouTube channel, starting tips and tricks to just help with this sort of COVID crazy and the fact that we can't get out, everyone's pulling their hair going, I can't get out of Melbourne, I'm doing the same gun, I can't teach people. And that's sort of what I like to do is train people. So I'm, I'm training is via my, my sort of videos and stuff on there. So you can jump on there, you can throw me suggestions on there and I try to make some more educational videos for you. Or come jump in, do one of my courses when we're allowed to. Anyone that's actually listening that's rural, I'm about to put out one now because it's just opened up that we can, we can travel, we can camp rural. So I'm going to be able to start back up with any rural customers. I'll first contact all the ones that are already on my standby list that I have sitting there that go, if you're rural, I can now take you. But if you're listening here now and you're from a rural area and think, you know what, I wouldn't mind doing it, I do two, three, four-day courses, sort of suit your budget, suit what you need, suit whatever level of experience. And my idea is to fill the gaps in your knowledge. I don't mind if you've never hunted a sandbar or you've hunted them for 20 years. I'm pretty confident that I can still fill gaps in your knowledge you don't have because I've hunted them my whole life and I know that there's gaps that I can still have filled and someone else that is less experienced than me can still fill gaps because you're looking at it from a different point of view than I am and you've seen something that I haven't, I haven't noticed. So, Your courses are based um, around Eildon, Paul? Yeah, based out of Eildon. So, a couple of hours out of Melbourne. So, depends what part of rural you're from, but accommodation's included. So I organise the over-accommodation. You come, stay the night. They're big days. We do from dusk till dawn or dawn to dusk, sorry. So we're up before the sun comes up and we go right through until it's dark. So night before you get there, have the accommodation so we're up nice and fresh and then we'll go play for deer. Depends what you want to do. First two days is all based on understanding the deer, doing all what we cover here is the main part of my courses is understanding deer and filling your knowledge in deer information. Then I do shooting training courses and butchering courses and then do sort of a guided hunt course as well. So it's a mix of everything. If you just want deer knowledge, first two days, you want to get into good shooting training and practice courses, which everyone that's ever done it with me really enjoys it because it's a good fun day. It teaches you and gives you confidence to shoot 
and I will find where you're not confident and I'll make you to learn to shoot that way so you are confident on doing that, but also full butchering courses, pull a whole deer out of a cool room, put knives in your hand and you pull it apart. So how to field dress it, but then not just that, then what do I do once I field dress it? How do I break a back leg down? Where does a top side and a silver side and a drowler come from? Break it down to that. Then how do I turn that into a steak so I can eat it? So that's the butchering courses as well. And then, yeah, I offer, after all that, we, we put it all together and we go basically on a guided hunt to a degree, but it's still educational based. And we said we can't tip one over. Well, thanks so much for giving us your time tonight. Um, the chat's just going crazy. I know a lot of people have appreciated it. has been the best part of six to eight months before since any of us have been able to sort of get together face to face and and talk about deer. I know it's it's a really important thing that we do at, at ADA meetings and ADA events, just having that community of like-minded people. Hopefully tonight's given people a little bit of that. It's it's not the same thing and we will be back together again. And I suppose I'll ask you if you're willing to come back again given the amount of unanswered questions. From ADA's perspective, we'll try and do a few more of these talks. We're not going to ram them down your throats, but when we've got good, interesting speakers, we'll try and bring them to you more often. This format seems to work. There's been a, a good number of you on board. But a huge thanks on behalf of everyone. We had you know, 275 people logged in and riveted and listening and asking a heap of questions. So thanks, heaps, for giving me your time and your knowledge, Paul. No, not a problem. Glad to help. And yeah, if you're only new to members, yeah, tell your friends, get more people. This is what we need to do. We need to stick together as as outdoor lovers and sort of promote what we do. We need to grow this. That's why I'm happy to help and do it. It's to promote this sport for generations to come. I want my kids to be able to do this stuff. So everybody out there, yeah, help spread the word. And I'm happy to help share the love and knowledge with you. If you'll help spread the word and get more of us doing this right and getting out there. Hopefully you can get out there soon. Yeah, absolutely. So check out paulbogesoutdoors.com.au and Paul Bugs Outdoors on socials and you'll you'll see him. There's a heap of free info there um, and all the contact details if you want to know more about all the courses that Paul runs and highly recommended. And Gino will be ringing you as soon as he's free to take up his raffle ticket and learn a thing or two. Unless he falls over and hurts himself again. Which is highly likely. Thank you all. All right. Good night. <laughs>